Well, good morning, Calvary Chapel, Mountain View. I'm glad you guys could all, <laughs> good morning. I'm glad you guys could all join us today. Uh, before I get into some exciting announcements, I wanted to read a, a verse out of Psalm 94. It says this, Psalm 94, 19, In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. And how true that is uh, during this time, the last few years of dealing with COVID and masks and uh, all kinds of mandates, right? <laughs> that we can rely on the Lord in the midst of all of this um, is what gives us hope, right? Um, and on that note, we have a few things to go over and uh, Pastor Jeff was going to share uh, an awesome message with us today. So if you don't already know... Um, Pastor Bill um, has been out. He actually got COVID, him and his entire family, and he wanted me to read a, a little note from uh, um, an email he just sent me this morning. So I'm going to read this little note, so bear with me. So I'm reading off my phone. So here you go. Hey, Calvary Chapel, Mountain View family, I'm so sorry to not be with you this morning. Many of you know I've been in the hospital all week, admitted to the critical care unit last Saturday with acute COVID pneumonia. They tell me I very nearly met Jesus face to face last Saturday night with my oxygen levels in the 40s. But with the powerful prayers of so many of God's people and some substantial medical intervention and wonderful care, including a range of therapeutic and uh, interventions, I'm still with us. And I know it was your prayers and the healing touch of Jesus that turned the overwhelming tide. Rumor has it that they may spring me from here this afternoon, sent home on an oxygen uh, on oxygen for what they say may be a slow recovery. So pray for patience for me in that. I don't wait well. <laughs> God has shown me so much this week as he continually demonstrated his faithfulness and showed his grace to be sufficient over and over and over again. We'll have a bumpy road ahead, but I'm excited for what the Lord is doing in our body during this time. It's the kind of deep work that can't be done in ordinary circumstances. If you're with us, hang in there because I know it will be worth it. We'll be a better church for it. I know I'll be a better pastor to you because of it, and you all deserve it. Jesus is still on the throne. I know Pastor Jesus or Pastor Jeff has a great word for us this morning. I can't wait to see you all soon enough. Pray for my family too. Most of them all tested positive as well, but they are young and strong and happily recovering in quarantine. We love you guys. So that's straight out of from Pastor Bill, and yeah, we echo that as a pastoral leadership and. Uh, you know, we, uh, we're going to keep on lifting them in prayer and keep on lifting everybody in prayer and, and seeking after the Lord. So right now, I know on Wednesday nights, some of us meet together um, at the church office, but we're going to pause that for a few weeks now. Um, and we're just going to be meeting um, in prayer. Um, now, if any of you guys want to talk to us after about uh, meeting up regularly or coming, um, maybe starting a Zoom meeting or doing prayer together, uh, feel free to talk to us and we'll uh, see if we can work something out where we can all meet up for coffee or meet up for uh, some prayer time because I think things are actually starting to open up now. So that should be good. Um, and one last note, just so you guys know, we are having an agape feast next month. July 4th happens to land on a Sunday, 
which is awesome. Uh, we have a sign out, a sign in sheet, sign in sheet. We have a sign up sheet on the table uh, right outside in the foyer. If you'd like to sign up to uh, bring any kind of side dishes or drinks or anything like that, we are planning on having some games and uh, having fun. So hopefully you guys can join us when we do that. And uh, thinking about uh, you know baked beans and some barbecue food, man. I'm getting hungry. So anyways, <laughs> without further ado, we're going to welcome Pastor Jeff um, as he shares God's word with us. Um, but before we do that, we're going to pray. How about we do that first, huh? <laughs> so Lord, we just thank you for today. Thank you for everyone here, Lord. Praying a blessing over Pastor Jeff as he shares your word with us today. And just praying over all of us, Lord, that we all are just receptive to what you would have to say to us um, to your church, Lord. So we just pray for Pastor Bill and his family, pray for your healing touch, and pray for Pastor Jeff as he shares today. In your name, amen. And uh, please wave hi to somebody, you know, maybe even say hi to somebody too. That could, that could work. <laughs> hey, everyone. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor Chris. I'm glad it was corrected. My name is definitely not Pastor Jesus, and I definitely have a lot less hair than them, too, so thank God for that. Good morning, everybody, and by the way, happy Father's Day. I don't know, well, I know there's at least, got to be at least a couple of fathers here this morning. Those of you that are fathers, can you raise your hand? I'm just curious about the fathers that are here. I see a few of you. Um, can I embarrass you for a moment and ask you to stand up? If you could, I'd just like to honor you this morning and pray over you guys. Let's take a moment and pray for them. Father, we thank you for the fathers that are in our fellowship, and we pray over them that you would bless their day today and minister to them and recharge them today, and um, just anything you can do for them to just bless them so much. I pray that you would do that. Make them the godly men that you've called them to be. Continue to use them and just pray for your best over them in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, those of you, by the way, that are watching on the live stream, welcome too, and I'm glad that you're able to tune in. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. If you're familiar with, the, with this chapter, then you know this is the chapter where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And we're going to get some insights into that this morning because there was some stuff that Jesus had in mind when he did this. And we're going to look at that this morning. John chapter 11. So if you're there, let's pray and then we will start. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. And we pray as we study your word right now that you would give us all an open heart and an open mind to receive what you have for us. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a website that is targeted toward motorcycle enthusiasts. It's called rideapart.com. Just curious, any of you guys ride motorcycles? I see one of you. I was just curious. Well, maybe this applies to you. On the website, well, actually, you're too old for this. On the website, there's an article that's directed toward teenagers as far as how to get a motorcycle. And this is the title of the article. How to convince your father you deserve a bike. 
Now you notice that they don't go after the mothers because there's no way that mom's going to cave into a request like this. It's the dads that are the softies, right? Well, here are just a few of the suggestions that they give to teenagers to try to talk dad into getting a motorcycle for them. Here's one of them. Point to your responsibilities. Not only have you accomplished much for your youthful self, you're also mature. Being financially responsible is a strong indicator that you're head and shoulders above your pimple-faced peers. So that's one suggestion. Here's another one. Remind him of his younger self. If your dad has any vestige of rebellious spirit left in him, he'll remember what he was like. And then there's this. Deploy the male bonding argument. Milk this cow for all it's worth since your father likely craves more time with his maturing son. These guys were, were smart when they put together this article. Now, if a teenager tries to talk into get, in getting his dad to buy him a, a motorcycle, it's because that teenager has an agenda. He wants that bike and he will do whatever he can to get dad to buy him the bike. That is his agenda. Well, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, do you realize that he had an agenda in doing so? He didn't do it just for the sake of doing it. He had a purpose, actually several purposes for this. And we're going to look at that this morning in John chapter 11. We're told here about the death and the resurrection of Lazarus. Now, throughout Jesus' ministry, he had healed numerous people. But in this instance, he would take it a step further by bringing a dead man back to life. But Jesus had much more in mind than just the healing of a dead man. And as we're going to see, Jesus had an agenda for the resurrection of Lazarus. As we look in the story, we're going to see four agenda items or four purposes that Jesus had in mind for restoring Lazarus. And it could be that God may intend to use any of these agenda items in your own life personally, like he did in this matter with Lazarus. Now, if you're facing some kind of a trial or circumstance, some challenging circumstance, God may have an agenda to fulfill in that circumstance in your life. If you're praying for God to bring about something, to answer prayer, to provide something, it may be that God may have an agenda toward answering that prayer. So what Jesus did in healing Lazarus, he may have a similar agenda in some way in your life. And we're going to look at that this morning. Here's the first purpose, the first agenda item that Jesus had to raise Lazarus. Number one, to glorify God. To glorify God. Look at John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany the town of Mary and her sister, Mar sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not under death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So let's set the scene. In the village of Bethany, there are two sisters, Mary 
and Martha. And this is the same Mary who would later take a flask of expensive oil, pour it on the feet of Jesus, and wipe his feet with her hair. That was her way of anointing him. And they had a brother, Mary and Martha, they had a brother named Lazarus. He wasn't feeling well. In fact, he was very sick. In fact, the clock was ticking away on his life because this illness was so severe that he could die. All three of them knew Jesus. And the sisters knew that Jesus had the power to heal Lazarus. They needed his help, and so they send word for him. They're in Bethany. Meanwhile, Jesus and his disciples, they're several miles away from Bethany. They were on the east side of the Jordan, possibly in the area of Perea. And this is east of Bethany, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus are. And because of the distance that Jesus was away, it would have taken some time for word about Lazarus to arrive to him. Let's remember that back then, that news did not travel so rapidly. It's not like there were telephones, internet, radio, or anything like that at that time. Word to spread several miles to Jesus was going to take at least several, several hours, maybe even possibly almost a day. And meanwhile, Lazarus' condition is getting worse and worse. Now, Jesus makes his intentions known as to what's going to happen. He said this, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus is going to heal Lazarus. It's not going to happen immediately, but it is going to happen ultimately. And he gives, death's not going to be the, uh, the final outcome of any of this, but he, and he gives one of the purposes for this healing, that God would be glorified and that Jesus would be glorified through it. This is all part of Jesus' agenda. Now, to glorify God is to give him the praise, the honor, and the worship that he is due. Let me say that again. To glorify God is to give him the praise, the honor, and the worship that he is due. For instance, when God answers prayer in your life, he has much more in mind than just answering prayer. God wants to be glorified in doing so. That's one purpose for answered prayer. It's to glorify God. And Jesus mentioned this in John chapter 14, verse 13. The night before he was crucified, he said this to his disciples. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Why is it that God wants to be glorified when answering prayer? I think it's so that he and he alone can take credit for answered prayer, that nobody else can take credit for it but God. It's to draw attention to himself. When you're praying over some situation and God answers it, and especially when God answers it in only a, in only a way that he can do it, who's the only one that can get credit for it? It's God. And he gets glorified through that. It should lead to gratitude toward him, worshiping him, thanking him, all of that glorifies him. And he's do it. When he answers prayer, it glorifies him. This was one of the purposes for Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. One of the agenda items was to glorify God. That's number one. 
Here's the second agenda item that he had. Another purpose for resurrecting Lazarus. Number two, to develop faith. To develop faith. Look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now just pause right there and think about that for a moment. Jesus now knows that Lazarus is dying. He says that death is not going to be the ultimate outcome, that he is going to get better. And it says that he loved all three of them, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And then after it says that, he stays two days right where he's at. Does that sound weird to you? But you know something? Jesus had a reason for doing that. Again, this is not going to be just any other healing. He's got a purpose in all this. So now two days have passed. And Jesus is now ready to return to Judea and heal Lazarus. But the disciples were not in a hurry to get back. Look at verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? Now, in the area of Judea, you've got Jerusalem and Bethany. Remember, Bethany is where all three of them are. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Jerusalem was right next to Bethany. The disciples did not want to be anywhere near Jerusalem anytime soon. See, back in the prior chapter, in chapter 10, Jesus was in Jerusalem at that time, and he was having a dialogue with the Jews, and he was saying some very heavy things. He said that he was one with the Father, one in union with him, and that he was the Son of God. And by saying that, that's claiming to be God, which is true about him. And he's telling these things to the Jews. They didn't like what he heard, and so they were ready to seize him and to put him to death. But Jesus had escaped from them, and that's what brought he and the disciples on the east side of the Jordan. Now, Jesus is ready to return back to the area, and the disciples are fearful to return. Verse 9, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. So at this point in time, Lazarus has died, and Jesus knows it. He's been waiting for this to happen. That's why he waited two more days. He didn't want to heal Lazarus immediately. <clears throat> he wanted to wait until he died. So now he tells the disciples, all right, it's time to wake Lazarus up. And they thought he meant that Lazarus was sleeping. It was Jesus' way of saying that he died, and now he's going to bring Lazarus back to life. The Bible often mentions this expression, sleeping, as referring to physical death. Verse 14. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, 
that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. The optimist that Thomas was. And so now Jesus makes it very clear what happened to Lazarus in a way that they cannot misunderstand him. He died. Couldn't be more blunt than that. But then notice what else he said. He said, I am glad for your sakes. Whose sakes? The disciples. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. Why? That you may believe. In other words, it was good for the disciples that Jesus did not heal Lazarus while he was living. He wants to heal Lazarus while he's dead. Why did Jesus want to do this? To benefit the disciples so that they would believe. And this gives us an insight into this other agenda item that Jesus had for resurrecting Lazarus. It was to build faith. To build faith. In this case, it's to build the faith of his disciples. They would spend three and a half years with Jesus. They watched him do many things, many miracles, teaching. And during that time, not only was Jesus teaching them, teaching them, he was developing them, strength, developing their faith, strengthening their faith. And he did this through various different circumstances. Remember when they crossed the Red Sea and there was a tempest that rose. Do you remember how the disciples reacted? They were in a panic. The boat's just wobbling all over the water. And while all that was going on, Jesus was sound asleep. Didn't affect him at all. And so the disciples, they wake him up. They tell him what's going on. He rebukes the wind and the seas. And then he looks at the disciples and he says, where's your faith? He was working on the disciples. He was building their faith in different ways. They watched him heal many people. A few of them even watched him resurrect the daughter of Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. Now, why was Jesus doing this? Because the disciples, they needed it. It was necessary in light of what was ahead for them in the future. You see, they had an enormous task ahead, and that was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to evangelize others and to lead the early church. That was an enormous responsibility. And so their faith needed to be built and strengthened. And for, for them to see Jesus heal a dead man, their faith could never be the same. Never. Peter would especially benefit from this later in his ministry. In Acts chapter 9, there was a disciple named Tabitha. And she became sick and died. And if you know the story, you'll remember that Peter went to her, prayed for her, and she came back to life. And I think to have seen Jesus resurrect Lazarus at an earlier time must have given him the faith that Jesus can bring this other disciple back to life. Again, this was Jesus' way of equipping the disciples. It was to build their faith. That's what he's got in mind by resurrecting Lazarus. Now, when God allows trials in your life, he uses them to build your faith in him. There's something about trials when God allows them that we turn to him. And it may not be easy to believe in him in those times and to trust him through those times. But in those circumstances, God uses that to get us to depend on him, to build our faith and trust 
in him. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, Peter writes this. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials refine us. They make us tougher, but they're also an opportunity for our faith to be tested and to be built, developed, and grown. When God answers prayer in your life, it builds your faith and your trust in him. When you see different ways, different circumstances that you're praying over, whatever it be, and then God answers them, what does that do to your faith? It grows. That's one of God's agendas for answering prayer. This is one of the reasons, by the way, why it's a great thing to keep a prayer journal. There may be things that you're praying over, and it's good to write those things down, maybe date what, put a date down right next to it, whatever it is that you're praying about. And then when God answers those prayers, it's good to write down those answers as well, put a date down and the answer as far as how God answered them. And here's what happens after you've done that after a while. When you look, late, look back later on at those things that you've written down, and you see answer prayer after answer prayer, challenge after challenge, and you see God intervene in each of those things, what does that do? When you look back at hindsight, it shows you how real God is in your life. Your faith cannot help but remain the same when that happens. And it's good to look back at answered prayers in your life. A prayer journal is a tremendous help toward that. So thus far, we've seen two agenda items, two purposes for Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. First, it was to glorify God. Second, it was to build faith. Here's the third purpose, the third agenda item. Number three, to compel faith to compel faith. Verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. There used to be an old rabbinic superstition, and it went like this. Within the first three days of death, the spirit of the dead body would hover over the body, waiting to enter it. But by the fourth day, when the body would decay, then the spirit would depart. It was a superstition. Now, I don't know if that superstition existed at the time of Jesus. If it did, then maybe friends and relatives might have had possibly some kind of hope that Lazarus would get better, and then that hope would have been gone by the fourth day at that time. But regardless, when Lazarus died, he would have been buried immediately. The Jews did not embalm a dead body. The body would be buried, buried immediately after death. And so now by the time Jesus and the disciples have arrived in Bethany, Lazarus has now been dead for quite some time. Four days. The body's decaying at this time. And the sisters, Mary and Martha, they're in mourning. They're just weeping as you could weep over their loss. Verse 20. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. 
but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. So Martha meets up with Jesus, and you notice the first thing that comes out of her mouth. Lord, if you were here, Lazarus would still be alive. He would not have died. Now, she knew of Jesus having healed multitudes of others, and I'm sure that that helped give her faith that Jesus would heal Lazarus while he was alive. But he wasn't. Lazarus, he gets sicker and sicker, and Jesus is nowhere to be seen. What do you think Martha might have been thinking throughout that whole time? Jesus, where are you? I mean, the, the clock's ticking. This is <laughs> what's going on. Then Lazarus dies, and Jesus still hasn't shown up. And I'm guessing that Martha must have felt disappointed by this point in time, having expectations that Jesus would make it in time to heal Lazarus. Four days have now gone by. Jesus has finally arrived, and Martha is distressed. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But then notice the very next thing she said. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Can you see just a little bit of a glimmer of hope and faith coming from her? And Jesus wanted that to happen. A slight hope that even though Lazarus is dead, Jesus could bring her back to life. And Jesus confirmed that he would resurrect Lazarus. He said, your brother will rise again. But Martha interpreted that in a different way. See, she knew that Lazarus would be resurrected at a later time, just like everyone else that believes in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Our ultimate destiny is not death. For those of us that have received Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, our ultimate destiny is eternal life with him. Now, regarding Lazarus, Martha was looking ahead to the then and there, whereas now Jesus is pointing her to the here and now. She's looking ahead to the future resurrection. Jesus is pointing to her to now, that Lazarus will be resurrected now. That's what he was saying to Martha. And he's trying to compel faith out of Martha compelling her to believe him for the resurrection of Lazarus. That's one of his purposes, one of his agenda items for bringing Jesus back to life. And we're going to come back to this point momentarily. Verse 28. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her 
when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then, when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same reaction as Martha. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? So Jesus now meets up with Mary. She's weeping over her loss. And she reacted very similarly to how Martha reacted. If you had been here, Jesus, Lazarus would still be alive. Jesus sees her grief, and he sees the grief of those that are around her. And he was moved by it, deeply moved by all of it. And it's not because of the death of Lazarus. It's because how it affected them. He was moved by their grief. But now things are about to get interesting. Jesus comes out to the tomb of Lazarus, and then notice what happens next. Verse 38. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench. For he has been dead four days. King James Bible says, Lord, he stinketh. You couldn't be more blunt than that. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Lazarus is buried away inside of a cave. The Jews normally buried their dead within caves that were carved out of rocks. And this rock this, this cave has a, a rock that's sealing it, covering it up. So Jesus arrives, and he says something that I think must have startled everybody that heard him. The man's dead already, Lazarus. He's been buried away. And now Jesus says, take away the stone. Heads must have turned the moment that he said that. What are you doing opening up a cave where there's a dead man buried? He's dead. It's over. Let's go. Just mourn. Martha had to have been puzzled. Come on, Lord. He's dead. He smells. Shut the cave, man. Don't let the stench get out of here. What are you thinking? What are you up to? I mean, it's not just every, any day that somebody is going to go to the cave of someone that's dead and take away the stone. The person's been put to rest. Jesus is up to something here. Notice what Jesus said. Did I not say to you, Martha... That if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. Again, Jesus is trying to compel faith from Martha to believe him for the resurrection of Lazarus. He wants to resurrect him, and he wants Martha to believe him for this. Now, there may be times in your life, maybe even right now, where God is compelling your faith and challenging you, challenging you to trust him to fulfill his promises, or to meet a need, even when there is no outward, visible evidence that he will do so. 
me say that again. There may be times where God will compel your faith and challenge you to trust him when there is absolutely no visible outward evidence that he's going to do so. And we see Jesus doing this with Martha. He had every intention to resurrect Lazarus, and he wanted Martha to believe him for this. No outward evidence, visibly, for Martha to believe this except the word of Jesus. And you may face similar times where you have to believe, the, believe God for a promise, for a need to be met, for him to do whatever it is that he wants to do in answer to prayer, where he may compel your faith and challenge you to trust him when there is no visible evidence that he's going to do that. But there is one humongous obstacle that you need to watch out for. Don't miss this. Listen carefully. Be careful that you don't put expectations on God to work in your way and in your timing. That can be a tremendous obstacle. If God is going to fulfill a promise in your life, if you're believing him to do that, don't allow yourself to put expectations on him to work in your way and in your timing. Martha made that mistake. She expected Lazarus to be healed while he was alive. And that's understandable. I mean, yeah, Martha knew Jesus, of Jesus healing others, and that gave her reason to believe that Jesus would make Lazarus better while he was living. And it's not every day that you see a dead man being brought back to life. So that had to have been the furthest thought from her. But the thought that Jesus could heal him while he's living, I know Martha had those expectations. And then he dies. And now those expectations are gone. And she's in distress. Jesus would heal Lazarus, but not while he was alive. He would not work in Martha's way and in her timing. Now, maybe you've made the same mistake before, expecting God to work in your way and in your timing. For instance, have you ever asked, for God, asked God for something in prayer and then suggested to him how to bring it about? Ever done that before? <laughs> what happened when he didn't do things your way? Doubts, distress, questions, uncertainty. I'm sure you've experienced that. You might remember a, a slogan that Burger King used to have, have it your way. But you know what? God does not do things our way. He does things in his way, in his timing. And I've made this very same mistake before, putting expectations on God to work my way. Many years ago, there was a circumstance in my life that I was out of full-time work for a little over two years. And I had been looking for work and praying for God to meet this need to provide me a full-time job. Well, over two years that this went on. Just over a year into this, actually a little more than a year, I didn't know what to think or what to believe or what to do. And I remember praying one day and just, you know, just being at a loss. And I'll never forget the Lord spoke to me, ministered to me, that he was going to provide me a job. And I knew that I heard from him. I knew that was God's word to me. Not long after that happened, I had an interview for a tech job out in Urinda. 
yeah, Arinda, it was um, a position that was very similar to, this, to the experience, the work experience that I had. My work experience was a match for that job. Had the interview, it went so well. And I had expectations of getting that job. I was just so certain that God was going to give me that job, especially after him ministering to me. It came down that there were two candidates for the position, and the other candidate got the job, not me. And when that happened, I was so depressed. And I was depressed over the next several weeks. Why? Because I thought I was going to get that job. But you know what? God is not obligated to work in my way and in my timing. About a year later, he would indeed work out things in that where I got hired in a full-time job. And it's a story in itself how it happened. Only God could have orchestrated it. But he did not work in my way, in my time. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, it says this. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, God wants us to come to him in prayer for various things. He wants us to trust him to answer prayer. He wants us to believe him to fulfill his promises. He can compel your faith, challenging you to believe him for these things when there's no visible outward evidence that he's going to do so, but he does things in his way and in his timing. Don't put your own expectations on him to do things your way or you will get stumbled. Now, we've seen three agenda items. Remember, Jesus had an agenda for raising Lazarus from the dead. We've seen three purposes for it so far. First, it was to glorify God. Second, it was to build faith. Third, it was to compel faith. Here's the fourth purpose for it. The fourth agenda item for this resurrection. Number four, to testify of Jesus. To testify of Jesus. Verse 41, then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. So the stones rolled away, and now Jesus is praying out loud. He wanted everybody to hear what he was about to say. And in his prayer, he first refers to the Lord God as his father. He wanted everybody to know that he was the son of God. They had a difficult time believing that. He wanted them to know that, the that he and the father are indeed one, that they're in union with each other, just as they had been saying to others all along. And second, he thanks the father from ha for having heard him. Apparently, he had been praying over this whole situation leading up to this moment. Third, he says that the father always hears him. He's giving insights to others regarding his relationship with the Father. And then fourth, 
he makes it clear why he's saying these things and why he's about to call out Lazarus from the dead, that others would believe that the Father sent him. It was to testify of himself to others. This was one of the purposes for Jesus resurrecting Lazarus. Everything he claimed about himself would, proven to be, would be proven true by bringing this dead man back to life. So now comes the moment of truth. Jesus calls out for Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. One commentator jokingly said that if Jesus did not call Lazarus by name, all would have come out of their graves. All of a sudden, out, out of the cave comes this, dead, this man that was dead, Lazarus. He comes out, he's wrapped in linen. The people unbind him. They release him from the, from the bindings. Now, if you were there to have witnessed this yourself, if you were right there when Jesus was at the cave and he calls out Lazarus and Lazarus comes out, if you had seen this for yourself, how do you think you would have reacted? I would have to think it would be shock. Ah, wow, God. Well, there was a mixed reaction among the people that were there. It led to some of them believing in Jesus, and that was great. Others, though, they went to the Pharisees to report what happened. And so then from that point on, the Pharisees were looking for a way to put Jesus to death. A completely different reaction. Now, Jesus testified of himself when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Again, this was one of his agenda items. Everything he said about himself was true, and it was proven when he brought Lazarus back from the dead. Everything he said about himself was true, regardless of whether or not anybody else wanted to believe that. But the proof was right there. And one of Jesus' disciples, John, was an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. It's the, first, it's the same person that wrote this gospel, the Gospel of John. What we read about, it was documented by him. He was there to have witnessed this. And John would witness many other miracles that Jesus did. But the greatest miracle that, he, that Jesus ever did was to resurrect himself from the dead. When he went to the cross to bear the penalty of everybody's sins, died on the cross, and then on the third day was resurrected from the dead, John saw Jesus on the cross. He saw what happened to him. He was there. He witnessed it himself. And then three days later, he saw Jesus resurrected. And he was no spirit. He said, he said handle me, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see I have. He was in the flesh in their presence right there, no spirit, he came back from the dead. John saw it himself. And in John chapter 20, verse 31, John tells us why he documented all of this. He said that these things are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, there might be somebody listening that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Maybe somebody that's here in the sanctuary right now. Maybe someone that's watching the stream right now. Might be somebody that's listening that does not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that person might think, I don't need Jesus in my life. If that's you, this will be my question to you. 
when you pass from this life, do you have the hope of heaven? And your response might be, yes, I'm a good person. I try to do great things. I would think that I'll get to heaven. But here's the truth. Without Jesus, you cannot make it there. The truth is this. Everybody needs Jesus. The Bible says that all have sinned. And I mean everybody. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Sin keeps you out of heaven. It makes you deserving of being separated from God for all of eternity. And somebody, the only way you're going to get there is if somebody forgives you and cleanses you from your sin. That's the only way you can make it to heaven. And that's where Jesus comes in. See, here's the gospel. Jesus came, the Son of God, went to a cross, paid the penalty of everybody's sin by dying on the cross and then coming back and being resurrected from the dead so that anybody that puts their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior will be forgiven of their sins, cleansed from their sins, become a child of God, and have the hope of heaven. Many people in here have already come to that point. And if you have not, you have an opportunity to do that right now. And where you're at, whether you're sitting here in the sanctuary, whether you're watching on the stream right now, all you have to do is place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, asking him to forgive you of your sins. Lord, I come to you. I am a sinner. I repent of my sin. I believe you came and died and rose again to pay the penalty of my sin. Please forgive me. And when you do that, you're a new creation. You become a child of God and you have the hope of heaven. There are going to be a couple of people up front here, prayer counselors, that would love to talk with you if you would like to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and they would love to discuss this with you. Those of you that are watching on the stream, there's a church email address, info at ccmv.org. If you would like to receive Jesus Christ, again, you can receive him now just by believing in him, believing that he paid the penalty of your sin, repenting of your sin, asking him to forgive you of your sin, and at that moment, you're a child of God. And we'd love to hear from you if you're doing that. Again, the, the email address is info at ccmv.org. Also, for everybody else here, if you have need of prayer for anything, the prayer counselors are available to pray with you and to pray for you. My wife, Anne, is on the right-hand side. Steve is on the left-hand side. And they would love to come alongside with you and to pray for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of what you did with Lazarus and all the agenda items that you had for this. I pray for anybody listening that needs to be saved. And I pray that you would work in their lives whatever you need to do to show them their need for Jesus even right now and that you would do whatever you have to do to draw them to you and to bring them to salvation in Christ. And I pray for everybody listening that may be dealing with challenges right now, whatever it be. Needing a need to be met, praying over something, dealing with challenging circumstances. I pray, Father, that you would give them the faith to believe you and to trust you in these things. And however you work in these circumstances, 
I pray that you would be so glorified that they would know and that others would especially know that you stepped in and intervened in those situations. And I pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.